Last Sunday, both pastors um, mentioned that we are stepping out of our current series, Pastor Fisher in 1 Timothy in the mornings and myself in Romans in the evenings to do a special series during this Advent season on the angelic appearances during the coming of Christ into the world. We've noted that at such times in redemptive history when God is on the move or doing something significant in his plan of redemption, such as the advent of Christ, then we often do find in the scriptures angels present as his messengers. That's literally what the term angel means. It means messenger. There was nothing more significant, of course, than in all of human history than the birth of our Savior, which we celebrate this time of year and which marks the line between B.C. or before Christ and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Well, that is what we will begin next week, Lord willing, as we look at the four major times during the Advent season where in the Christmas story we see angels present, first to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, then to Mary, and then Joseph, and then the shepherds. But this morning, in God's providence, we've just witnessed again a third baptism, covenant baptism, in two weeks. Lily and Zach last week, Zoe this morning. And we continue to give thanks for these covenant children, as we do for all of our covenant children. And we pray earnestly that the Lord will bring to pass in his timing all that baptism signs and seals for these children as they are marked out as belonging to the visible church. It is a great joy for the parents. It's a great joy for us as a church. And it lays a proper burden, I think, upon us as a congregation that we seek earnestly and pray earnestly for the salvation of these children, even from the earliest of their years. And so I want us to consider the Bible's teaching on covenantal baptism this morning, since it's been quite some time that we've had the opportunity to look at this in any detail. Some of the questions we'll ask this morning, why do we baptize our infants? Why do we believe and teach that our covenant children should be baptized, receiving the mark of inclusion into the covenant community? And what are we saying and what are we not saying when we baptize our covenant children, usually as infants? Well, to answer these questions, I want to look back this morning at one of the key passages in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul addresses the nature of baptism, which I trust will help us to understand these issues much better. And perhaps for some of you, we've received a lot of new members recently and some from various backgrounds. For some of you new to Grace Presbyterian Church, my hope and prayer is that you will at least better understand what we believe and teach regarding this most important issue, even beyond what you've already heard uh, during these recent baptisms. And so this morning, I'm going to ask that you turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Again, we encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open. You'll find that on page 1169 in your pew Bible, and as is our custom always to stand during the reading of the Word of God to be preached, please stand. I'm going to be reading verse 6 through verse 15, larger context, important as we seek to understand these two uh, very important verses. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord. 
Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, as we address these important matters, we pray that your spirit alone would be our teacher, directing and guiding us in all that we do here. May your word preached and heard be received with joy. And may we, because of hearing it, rejoice all the more in all that you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Come with me, if you will, to the first century, about 30 years after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to a city of Asia Minor, now called modern-day Turkey, that was not all that important in its day, at least not as important as some of the other cities to which Paul would address some of his letters. Uh, Paul would never visit the city of Colossae on his missionary journeys, but we know that soon after Paul's ministry in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, the gospel spread through all of Asia. The church in Colossae was founded by a man named Epaphras during that time, and Paul heard of their faith, as he tells them, and of their love for all the saints. As best as commentators can understand, it appears that at some point during Paul's Roman imprisonment, which we read about at the end of Acts in chapter 28, Epaphras visits Paul in prison and shares with him, as the founding pastor, if you will, of the church, some of his great concerns about the false teaching that had crept into the church and was literally threatening its existence. Now, the exact nature is fodder for commentators over the years, and it's difficult to, to really pinpoint exactly what the issue uh, was in the church or the issues were in the church at Colossae. 
It seems to be some mixture of a Jewish asceticism, that is, denying oneself, denying foods, denying drinks, observing various holidays, etc. It seems to be something of that, along with some sort of mystical pursuit of higher knowledge through visions and through other means. Whatever it was, what it was at the heart denying was the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. That really was the heart of the issue. No matter how you look at this uh, letter, you can see from the very beginning, Paul in chapter 1 speaks in a marvelous passage of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He's doing that because that's what was at stake in the church at Colossae. Now, reading through that, Paul's aim seems to be to exalt Christ and to remind believers that they have all that they will ever need in Christ. And that's going to become the central theme, the, the idea or the doctrine of being in union with Christ. In Christ, they have received everything. And so he says in the verses we've just read in verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Continue with Christ. Don't add to it. Don't detract from it. Continue to walk in Christ. Now, those were specific to Colossae, but you have to remember and step back with me a little bit to the other letters of Paul where we see one of the great problems in the church in those early years of the New Testament, the Jewish and Gentile problem. And it was a significant problem. It becomes central to Paul in most of his letters. We talked about it in Romans. We're in chapter 4 now, about to enter chapter 5. And he's been talking about this Jewish-Gentile problem. And we know what the heart of it is. When Gentiles are be converted, was it necessary for them essentially to become Jews first by obedience to the Mosaic law, by circumcision, etc., before they could become Christians? Or was it God's purpose and plan that in this epoch, this period of time, that Gentiles would come in without having to become Jews, without having to follow the law of Moses. Now, we know earlier in Paul's uh, missionary journeys, in chapter 15 of Acts, this question, this very specific question, was addressed and settled by the teachers of the church, by James, the other apostles. And they taught that the Gentiles would be saved not in the same way, not by having to go back to the Mosaic law, having to be circumcised, but they would be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and not by obedience to the law. They wrote a letter to all the churches saying, we will not lay any other burden upon you but these things. Keep yourself free and unspotted from the world. Do not eat uh, sacrifices, you know, the blood of sacrifices. You, you know, keep yourself sexually pure. All of that would be what they would write. But they would not say that you have to be circumcised in order to become a true Christian. Now, this was actually what Paul's argument was in the book of Romans in chapter 4 that you heard read earlier. Uh, Paul was addressing the concern and issue, is a Jew saved differently than a Gentile? And does he have a position of favor because he's circumcised? Is it really circumcision which justifies us? And if it is, then, then Paul says the whole argument about faith being alone the instrument of justification is out the window. And you remember what Paul says. Don't you remember Abraham? He's talking about Abraham in the whole chapter. 
When was righteousness counted to Abraham, before or after he was circumcised? Well, at least 14 years before he was circumcised, it was counted to him for righteousness. And so he says that circumcision became a sign and seal. That's the language of sacraments. It's the language of our confession when we talk about sacraments. It becomes a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace. It was really for Abraham's benefit that God was affirming his promise, marking it through circumcision and saying, I will be faithful, Abraham. Through this sign, I'm telling you, I will be faithful to everything that I promised. Now, this Jewish and Gentile question was clearly one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenge to the early church. And it continued, and, and I won't go to other places, but you will see other places where in very strange ways this issue comes to the forefront, especially this issue of circumcision and its place in the New Testament church. It will come up again and again. Now, all of that is just background to the verses that we come to this morning. And instead of looking at them as we usually do through point one, point two, point three, point four, we're just going to go through the verses together. And you'll walk with me as we travel through these verses. We'll make some notes about them and we'll press the point, especially when we get to verses 11 and 12. But turn with me to verse six and seven first. This is sort of the beginning of Paul's introduction of this great statement that he's going to make in verses 11 and 12. And based on the background I've given you, you can see why he says what he does. He wants them to return to the original way in which they've come to know Christ, to walk in him the way they were brought to him as by faith receiving as a gift of God the blessings of the gospel. So as you received Christ Jesus by faith, so continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and abounding in thanksgiving. This is the whole focus of the letter. And Paul is repeating it here as he begins to talk about this idea of union with Christ that really is at the heart of this passage. To be united to Jesus Christ in his death, in his resurrection, to be identified with Jesus. That's the heart of this. And Paul says, I want you to remember how you received him. By faith, you believe the gospel. So continue to walk by faith in Jesus because you are rooted and you're built up in him and in him alone and never apart from him. You see, there were vain philosophies, all kinds of different worldly ideas that were threatening this union with Christ and threatening to pull them away, as it were, from their faith in him. And so verses 8 and 10 through 10, Paul begins to touch on these things. He does it in other places as well. He'll do it after in verse 16 and following. He'll talk about it prior to this, some of the issues that were going on. But here he speaks about some of these dangers. See to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive, makes you bound by philosophy and empty deceit. Worldly philosophy, worldly deceit is the idea here. Again, we don't exactly know what the heart of this is. According to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, 
and not according to Christ. Whatever it was, this new knowledge, this special knowledge that was gained by uh, these visions or these appeals to elemental spirits of the world, we don't exactly know what that is. What, whatever it was, it again was not according to Christ. He's pointing them again here to what is in Christ and only in Christ. And that leads to what he says in verses 9 and 10, which really is a transition to the verses we're going to focus on this morning. For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. He is the true God and man. We have that as our confession this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism. Why does our Savior need to be true and righteous man and true God? And those answers tell us why. Well, well here Paul says he, he is fully God, that in his physical body, as it were, the fullness of the deity dwelt. He is 100% man, 100% God, joined together without confusion, without mixture, but fully God and fully man. And so he's able to say that in him dwells the whole of the deity bodily. And you have been filled with this by the spirit. You've been filled with this by the spirit who is the head that is Christ of all rule and authority. This is a wonderful picture of the fullness that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we lack nothing. Peter says that everything we have need of for this life and for the life to come is found in Jesus Christ. And in our union with Christ, we now possess all of that. It is ours because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So you can see how Paul is saying these other things which are beside and other than Christ will gain you nothing because you possess everything right now in him. Why are you searching after those things? This is, has application, of course, to all of us as we look to the world around us and the vain philosophies and teachings of this world in which we live. Are we looking for our joy, fulfillment, satisfaction in the things of this world when in fact we have in Christ everything we could possibly ever need, especially with respect to our relationship with God? So, so that's really the heart of this. And now Paul says these verses in 11 and 12, which really is the focus of the rest of our time. Notice the language. It's very similar to what we've seen in him, in Christ. Also, you were circumcised with circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Some commentators say that Paul here is making the same argument he makes elsewhere in places like Galatians and Romans. They argue that he's arguing justification by grace alone through faith alone, that it's not through circumcision. It's apart from the works of the law. But honestly, that doesn't seem at all to be what Paul's arguing here. There, there's no marker to tell us that that what he's at. We know that's the general problem of all the churches. But that doesn't seem what Paul is doing here. He's not arguing for justification by faith alone rather than belief that circumcision saves us. 
He's using circumcision as something of an example, an illustration of what it means for us to be complete in Christ. He, he's repeating, telling us in by way of this illustration that this is how we have come to be complete in him through the work that God himself has done for us. And so he says it in him. You also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's not trying to refute some dominant teaching that required circumcision, but he's highlighting what it was that circumcision stood for what it represented, what has been accomplished at the cross by Christ and applied to believers already, notice the link, in their baptism. You see what these false teachers were promising, these believers, is that through their teaching, they might have power and victory over the flesh and over the lusts of the flesh. That is through special knowledge, a following of vain philosophies, and an adherence to the former things of the law and its regulations, they could somehow master their sinful natures. But you see, that distorts the gospel, and it removes Christ from its play, his place of supremacy. What Paul is talking about here, and it's very clear, is the circumcision of the heart, the very thing that was made without hands. No literal cutting of the flesh here, Paul says that this is about what circumcision has always pointed to. Circumcision has always pointed to this, the circumcision of the heart. You heard it earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And then in Deuteronomy 30, you also heard this earlier. And the Lord God will bring you into the land that you may possess it. He will make you prosperous. And the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. And then Jeremiah 4 Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. And then in Romans also, not chapter 4, but chapter 2, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That was never the intent of circumcision, merely as a political sign to identify that you belong to a particular tribe. Nor is circumcision, he says, outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is and has always been a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, why is all of this important? All of this is important because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Notice what he says. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, the sinful flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. 
Now, don't make a mistake here and believe that Paul is somehow bringing into his argument the actual eight-day circumcision of Jesus that we read in the book of Luke. That's not what's happening here. He's not talking about the circumcision of Christ with respect to the law. Jesus needed to fulfill all righteousness. And so he submitted himself fully to the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day when he came to John the Baptist to be baptized, which was a baptism of repentance. And we can talk about that later as to whether it correlates exactly to Christian baptism. But when Jesus went to John, he says, you must baptize me, John. Why? In order to fulfill all righteousness. He was standing in those places for us. He was identifying as the new Adam who was faithful and obedient to everything that God commanded. And so he submitted himself to the law. He's not talking about circumcision with respect to the eight-day law of Moses, but rather he's talking about Christ's death on the cross and our union with him in that death, the putting off of the flesh. It's clear in the rest of the verses, as you look past verse 12, he's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. That's his focus through which he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He's saying this is the reality. This happened when God did the work that only God can do. Remember, it's God who circumcises the heart. When God circumcised your heart, he said, made without hands, it was done on the cross of Christ as Christ's body was was beaten and bruised and, and our flesh united with him so that our sins are no longer have power over us. We'll talk more about that in Romans chapter six when we get there. But our union with Christ is his point here. And he's saying all of this happened This circumcision made without hands, the putting off of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ, it all happened, he said, it all comes into focus when? When you were baptized. That's what he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He continues to focus on our union with Christ and his central doctrine. All of that which was signified to you in circumcision, everything that was pointing to in physical circumcision, which God accomplished spiritually in your life through the circumcision of your heart, everything was signified to you in your baptism. Everything that the old covenant sign of circumcision has always pointed to, Paul says, is now what baptism points to. That is Paul's point in this passage. He, without any hesitation, without any uh, anything, he just simply says what was true of of the old covenant circumcision, the sign of the old covenant, is now true of baptism. What God accomplished, which was always the circumcision of the heart through his promises made, now in Christ fulfilled, is now represented, signed and sealed to us in baptism. These signs, Paul says, are essentially the same 
and reflect the movement of God away from bloody and complicated signs of the old covenant, circumcision, Passover, to the simple and bloodless signs and seals of the new covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. One writer says, circumcision and baptism are the initiatory signs and seals of the covenant of grace under the Old Testament and the New Testament. While the form, outward form, has changed, indicating an expansion of the covenant of grace, the meaning of the signs has remained essentially the same. The same writer, Robert Booth, in his wonderful book, goes on to say, generally those who reject covenantal baptism claim that circumcision was essentially a physical or political sign and that baptism is now a spiritual sign. He himself in his book goes on to quote David Kingdon as someone who rejects applying the covenantal sign of baptism to infants, who comments on this particular verse and says, we cannot, he says, make a radical dichotomy between these two covenant signs when the Bible speaks so clearly of them in analogous ways. Now, that's from someone who says that we shouldn't baptize our children. He says, if, if that's our view, we can't say that these two are so radically opposed to each other. They are, in fact, analogous in the mind of Paul. And here is where it is most clear. Paul equates the two so very clearly, declaring that both speak powerfully of the same truth. In Booth's book, towards the end, he has a wonderful chart, and we won't, I won't go through it now, but I will just tell you here are the 10 marks that he says the similarities between these two outward signs. Both, he says, are marks of initiation into the covenant community. That is true of both circumcision and baptism. Both speak of an inward reality. It's never about an outward reality. It's always an inward reality. Both are a picture of death and of the old man buried with Christ. Both point to heart repentance. Both speak of the work of regeneration or new life. Both are tied to justification by faith. Both represent a cleansed heart. Both are tied to our union with Christ. Both indicate a belonging to the Israel of God, the true people of God. Both remind us of our separation from the world. And both are spoken of as leading to either blessings or curses. Now, that's an exhaustive list. It's a helpful list, but it supports and points to, I think, what Paul is so clearly speaking in this passage. What God accomplished in our lives is signed and sealed, he says, in baptism. And those are the very same things that God accomplished through the circumcision made without hands. And what circumcision under the old covenant always pointed to the removal of the foreskin of our hearts, the circumcision of our hearts. And so these last words, uh, before we make application from another author, Jason Holopoulos, in his most recent and very helpful book, I recommend it to all of you. He's new in the PCA, but very gifted. Uh, he was, I think, uh, the associate pastor of... Um, and his name is escaping me, but in this passage, he writes, Paul clearly identifies circumcision with baptism. 
Each of them is an outward sign that is connected with a spiritual and inward reality, circumcision of the heart. Paul does not present one of the two as being more spiritual than the other. He says that we were circumcised in Christ when we laid aside the body of the flesh, that by faith we receive a circumcision that is made without hands. He is referring to the circumcision of the heart that is involved in our union with Christ. That circumcision of the heart is possible only because of the circumcision that Christ himself experienced upon the tree. Paul then states, just as we were circumcised in Christ, we were also buried with him in baptism. John Calvin, the magisterial reformer of Geneva comments, what do these words mean except that the fulfillment and truth of baptism are also the truth and fulfillment of circumcision, since they signify the one and the same thing. For he is striving to demonstrate that baptism is for the Christian, what circumcision previously was for the Jew. Paul teaches that both sacraments serve as signs of Christ's death and burial and resurrection, circumcision looking forward to Christ's death, baptism looking back to it. If baptism and circumcision are thus equated, then baptism is logically to be applied to infants, just as circumcision was. I think that's a great summary of the point that Paul is making here. All of this leads me, as we conclude this study this morning, to ask the questions we asked at the beginning. First, why do we baptize our infants or our covenant children? We baptize our infants or covenant children because Christ commanded it when he told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We see in that command what we believe Peter himself saw on the day of Pentecost when he proclaimed the gospel to the crowd gathered in Acts chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of this gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off Gentiles, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It is obvious but important to say that Jesus did not command his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel, circumcising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Because once baptism had come, there was no longer any need for circumcision. Secondly, why do we believe and teach that our covenant children should be baptized, receiving the mark of inclusion in the covenant community? Well, we believe they deserve the sign and seal of God's covenant of grace and inclusion into the covenant community because that is how God sees them intrinsically. According to 1 Corinthians 7, they are already holy because they are children who are the children of one or both believing parents. They are already set apart for God because they are our children, believers. That is, children of believers. 
We believe, like the children of the Old Covenant that God made, uh, like the promise of the Old Covenant that God made with Abraham and sealed by the covenant sign of circumcision, the fact that they are our children of believers, they deserve the mark of identity and inclusion in Christ's body, the church. That mark of identity and inclusion is now baptism and no longer circumcision. As Pastor Fisher last week so rightly said, there is no third place. There is no alternative for our children as to how we identify them. They are either of the world or they belong to the church. We choose the latter. They belong to the church and we mark them out as such with the only sign and seal that the Lord has given us to do so, baptism. And we pray that the Lord will bring to pass all that baptism signifies in their lives from the earliest of their years. Thirdly and finally, what are we saying and what are we not saying when we baptize our covenant children, usually as infants? What we are saying is everything that we have said this morning. And so we commend them, these things, these ideas, these teachings, to your study and investigation, even using the summary of these things that you have in the bulletin today. Review it carefully, study the issue, begin with an understanding of, of the covenant of grace, the one covenant of grace and the signs that God has given. There are wonderful things that we can recommend to you to read if you have not yet uh, come to believe and embrace these teachings. We are not saying that baptism ever saves our children. We're not saying that baptism really does anything to them at all. They are apparently, apparently passive and the mere recipients of the sign, even as all who are saved are the recipients of his grace. We do nothing to save ourselves and our children as they are baptized are passive and simply the recipients of his grace and favor according to his will. And we look with great hope to the one who has made great and precious promises that he will indeed, as he is pleased, bring all of our covenant children to faith in Christ. And I say that to those whose children have come at a young age and to those whose children may now even be wandering, but yet who bear the mark of inclusion in the covenant community. God is faithful to everything that he has promised. And our hope is that God will one day bring those things to pass according to his will. And then we look, and as they come, we encourage them to look back to their baptism with great joy to the God who saves. To those who may not yet be persuaded of this doctrine and who have children, you need to know that as elders here in this church, we long for you to come to this understanding because simply we believe it is right and biblical. And we pray to that end, and we will continue to teach to that end. We long for you to give them the covenant sign of being part of the church as the scriptures command. But you also need to know that as elders, we have no other way to view your children than what I've outlined this morning. There's no other way for us to view your children. We don't have a third category and we refuse to see them as belonging to the world. 
And so we do not rejoice less for your children in the womb than we do for our covenant children. We do not pray for them less than we do for all of our covenant children. We do not teach them less to obey Jesus Christ than we do for all of our covenant children. We do not long for their salvation any less than we do for all of our covenant children. And we do not rejoice less for your children when they come to faith than we do for all of our covenant children. In a phrase, we just don't treat them differently. We do not love them less because the word of God compels us to see them as part of the covenant community. And so our prayers are given for them constantly. Our heart's longing for their salvation is the same as for all of our covenant children. And that is the way it should be. And by God's grace, we will never falter from that view or that position. Are the children, one writer ends, are the children of Christian parents members of the covenant community? And should they therefore receive the sign of entrance into that community? When the question is asked that way, the burden of proof falls upon the believer's only side of the discussion. In the Old Testament era, children received the sign and seal of initiation into the covenant people of God through circumcision. God has not changed. The plan of salvation hasn't changed. The promises haven't changed. Thus, unless God tells us otherwise, we expect children to receive the sign and seal of baptism as they are initiated into God's covenant people during the New Testament era. Though scripture provides no proof text for either believers only or covenantal baptism, wherever we look, we find more evidence for covenantal baptism. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, these issues can be difficult. They strike at issues of great emotion and importance in our lives, uh, issues and matters well thought out for perhaps many years. And yet we would want uh, in all of these things, no matter what position we take, we would want the mind of Christ. And we pray that you would teach us and lead us into all truth and understanding and that you would be gracious as we consider this great and joyful topic of our covenant children. We thank you, Father, no matter our position, that these belong to you. You have given to them, uh, to them to us as a gift. You have called us to be faithful and good stewards. You have taught us how to raise them and to teach them to believe and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. That is common to every one of us here, and we pray that you would grant us grace, that we you that great work and that you would do the secret work, the circumcision of their hearts in bringing them to faith and the joy of knowing Jesus. This with great hope and thanksgiving in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.